0: And welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians, where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. And I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Dr. Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I am joined today by the lovely Ethan Kosak.
1: Hello. I am Ethan Kosak. I am a cartoonist and herpetoculturist and general layabout.
0: And the delightful Gabriel Lughetto.
2: And I'm Gabriel Lughetto and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore.
0: Now in the last episode, Gabriel, which admittedly was some time ago, <laughs> you said But that might change.
2: <laughs> but that might change, but but a lot of things have happened and I <laughs> haven't put it together, so I don't want to keep saying that because I don't know. When it will change and if it will change effectively. Because at, at this moment, I don't have time for anything. So, so
1: you're sort of uh, Schrodinger's herpetologist. No, this is what
2: happens. And I'm going to explain <laughs> what happens. I, when I, I left a lot of taxa waiting to be described. And some co-authors have contacted me. It's like, listen, are we going like, to work on this? Or you know, we have to get something with this. But you know, it's been very hard for me to find time. And I need to find time, even though the papers, some of the papers were fairly advanced, and we were waiting for well, whatever. I'm not gonna say what we were doing, but we were waiting for some results to come back, and the results are there. So you know, I I am the lead author, and I was, you know, I had to basically put the stuff together, and I have the manuscript, the manuscript half written, but writing is my slow point. So
1: what you're saying is is that herpetologists are sort of like ghosts if they have unfinished business they never there's, go away there's
2: <laughs> always some business, and to be honest i left like 15 species in the process of being described so there are a lot of stuff that you know that i i plan to eventually go back to because um, mm-hmm. because actually some of those things that i was going to describe some other people worked on them Without we knowing and already described, of course, because that yeah I knew that I knew that was going to happen, but 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 you know there's nothing I can do because I you know there, I cannot devote um, a lot of time to it right now, so of I don't really have much time, so that's yeah. what happens. That's why that's why I don't want to say it right now, and eventually. Well, I, I mean,
0: will... we we all are are faced by that problem. I mean, I shudder to think how many manuscripts I have on my you know in my to do list still that have been there for six years, and i mean one of my I, I submitted a paper in two thousand and fourteen that came back with uh reject and resubmit and um I never opened the file again, so I, <laughs> I have a i have a whole like a whole written manuscript that I poured hours and hours and hours of time into that i mean it probably will never be published um and that's just yeah at some point you just have to say okay well this one's this one's not going to be seeing the light of day and that's okay but for species descriptions it is kind of nice to to eventually get back to them but of course i mean you're crazy busy i feel the same way like you always have to make the priority choices about what you're going to do and
2: yeah, and and when. and it, and Ethan will understand this because Ethan, it's a freelancer now too. You also <laughs> have to learn to balance the fact that you also need to survive mentally. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. because you yeah. tend to take to, I say yes to m- most things, and I shouldn't. So it's, it's it's I have to manage. I say I cannot do it right now, so I can't. You would you would think that after
1: a year of this, that I have learned that lesson by now. Mm. I have not, and mm. so I have three major projects that I can't really talk about, but basically they're ongoing, they're all major projects, and I have no no time to do anything. Yeah. So people yeah. will ask, like, when are you going to update your comic? And I'm like, the free comic that I put on the internet for five years?
2: Exactly. You know. When I get to it. When I can grow, when I can grow a second pair of arms.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So when you find, you know, you, but it is important to find time to work on stuff that's just for you. I think. Just for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. agree. And not necessarily to do what some people, I, I don't know who I'm talking about, but what some people do and uh, make what they do for just for them also just for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh well that's a whole other yeah uh, other thing, you know. I think we're all guilty of that problem really. But oh well.
1: Yeah, that comes with sort of being extremely
2: online, I think,
1: all
0: the yeah, time. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, I well, think we, especially we
1: just, for it's artists. It's part
2: of what we have to do though. I yeah. mean, there's no there's no way around it.
1: Yeah. yeah. You're you're kind of always hawking your wares even when you aren't. And uh, there's there's no way around it. You That's absolutely to. true. Yeah.
0: yeah. It is yeah. what it is, as they it always is. say. Yeah. That, God, uh, this
1: got depressing really fast. It did. Let's
0: roll with it. This. And yeah. um, uh, Gabriel, how has your year in home office, although you have, I guess, always worked in home office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Not laughs> how that has different. your year been?
2: Not that different. The, the only issue is really that you cannot really go anywhere if you're a responsible person uh, or not yet because you know ethan has been vaccinated or half vaccinated but no yes. you're fully vaccinated no fully vaccinated i'm now fully i'm now yeah. fully
1: vaccinated yeah,
2: yeah i am not yet but i will be soon because Ugh. in florida in florida they finally allowed uh for younger people to have vaccinations so yeah i might
0: so, get vaccinated next year
2: yeah which is germany crazy. is
0: failing it is. I they feel, did such a great job at managing the pandemic, and then their rollout of vaccines has been embarrassing.
1: You know, for a country that's supposed to be like uber efficient at everything, yeah, you
2: guys dropped yeah. the ball. Yeah. Is the, is the, is the <laughs> says, the, Union says the
1: American.
0: But yeah, I was just gonna say, like, at least the people who uh, wind up in hospital here
1: generally survive yeah. yeah
0: not only do they survive but they also then don't have crippling debt for the rest of their lives anyway that's that a so discussion good. for also another good. time <laughs> yeah. so yeah. yeah
2: so I don't remember I don't remember the last time we had the last episode when was it, it was like it forever it came
0: out in early May and was recorded yeah, in
2: April so so that's insane because, you know, during the time, I, I published my work in National Geographic, which was a super cool so thing cool. for me. And, and I had a lot of illustrations in there. I, too many things to listen and, and to list, and I'm not going to sit here and talk to all about it. But one thing I will say is that I've been working, and now I think I can yeah, I can definitely say it for sure now. I illustrated this series of books written by Ben Garret. They are about the mass extinctions that have occurred. And I'm illustrating each of the seven books. There are seven books. And the first three are um, going to be out, I think, in Europe first, in, in, in the UK first, mm-hmm. in the summer, this summer. So um, the first books, the first three books, the main subject, I mean, they deal with a lot of stuff inside. But the f- main subjects of the first one is that um, warm creature from the Cambria, warm, that it's called uh, Hallucigenia. Mm-hmm. Then the second one is about Don Cleosteus, which is that famous prehistoric fish with a crazy mouth. Yeah. And the third one is about trilobites. And uh, the other books that will come up later after that will be um, Lysowikia, which is a, a, a Dicenodont. Um, then Tricer- Tyrannosaurus Rex. Then Megalodon, which is extinct people. And uh, then uh, the last two books are going to be about the tylosine, which was the li- last animal we really lost, like to extinction. And also extinct. Yeah. If you open also, up the also, if you open
1: up the book, is it all padmelons? <laughs> it's all just padmelons.
2: <laughs> no, the cool and, and the last one is going to be about the Hainan Gibbon, which is a species that is very near extinction right now. So, mm-hmm. uh, the the cool thing that what I like about and this is the last thing I will say about this is that. Um, we're not only depicting those animals in the book I get to depict a bunch of stuff both extant and extinct in each book and that's been so much fun it's been Mm. horribly difficult because you know the times uh, schedule has been a nightmare and it's been super um, uh, anxiety inducing but but, but they're going to be awesome books and I highly recommend them
1: cool I I can give sort of Reader's Digest versions of what I'm working on, I guess, uh, but not huge details. Um, one of them is a children's book about STEM careers and and diversity and stuff like that. Uh, and I think it's going to be really cool. I think the, the artwork is looking really good. Sounds uh, great. I'm, I'm happy with it. So I have no idea when that's coming out, but I'm almost finished with the art. I have a video game. Uh, that I'm doing artwork for that is going to be a mobile game, I think. And it's about plant metabolism. And so it's ostensibly a science game. Um, But I can't say a whole lot more about that right now. And then uh, I'm also working on a pitch for a cartoon youtube show that's about a uh <laughs> it's a talk show invented by ai that continued after the apocalypse
0: seeing some of the art it looks pretty ace
2: after yeah. the apocalypse yes
1: yeah, so basically it was like instructed to just keep going no matter what make this show it's called show 17 for humans and uh and so just keep barreling on with making this show and uh and so it takes place far into the future where there really aren't any people left and this show of robots is still trying to make essentially like the tonight show for nobody yeah and uh that's uh something that i have devoted a lot of time to and hopefully we'll be ready to to at least show some of it this summer so
0: cool can you give us a, a quick breakdown on the newt room, et cetera?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't done, I haven't bred all the species that I have this year. I I, I gave some of them some time off. Uh, like my, my male, uh, my male Triturus marmoratus is in horny jail because he <laughs> would rather mate than eat. So he's in his own setup, but I do. <laughs> I do have a lot of, like, palmate newts that are laying eggs like crazy, and I've got... uh, Well, I just recently got some tomato frogs. Yeah. Uh, So that's a new species in the room. And uh, so now I'm part of the microhylid club.
0: Yes, exactly. The other day, my scaphiophrine were out for the first time in almost a year, and it was very exciting. That's the...
1: (laughs) The rain frog, right? Yes, yeah, uh, Caffiophryn
0: uh, are, uh, are are um, also Malagasy microhylids. They they're like little rain frogs. Yeah, they're yeah, very yeah, round yeah. and very but these ones are green and they're delightful.
1: Yes, um, I love those guys. So I like that. I mean, I actually don't mind the the frog that sits in one place because you can save a lot on oh you know, in, for enclosure sure. space and in, in our case. Do, they, you know, we have them bunch.
0: in a big vivarium that is, it was actually originally set up for our crested gecko and to satiate my desire for orchids. Uh, it, it, <laughs> um, the crested gecko outgrew the tank and I also outgrew the space that it would allow me for orchids. And so we have another <laughs> tank now. Um, but the, uh, the scaviophrine are, because we have about um, almost 10 centimeters of soil in there. So, you know, that's, that's like three inches of soil. We never see the scafiofreen unless you go looking for them or they happen to come out at the right time. So, I've
1: noted that the, the, the tomato frogs are a little more active than that, yeah. but not much. And you will see them come out to use the water dish. They'll, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll, uh, they'll dig around, they'll come out, they'll, they'll sit in the water dish for a while. And then they'll go back and, and bury themselves. Yeah. But other than that, you don't really see them very much. So, but I like that. I you know that doesn't bother me. I love I love. You know.
0: They're they're charming frogs. I think if yeah. uh, if um, the scaphiophrine didn't eat the millipedes that are sort of a plague inside the tank that I've got, um, <laughs> I would have a really hard time keeping them alive because they only come out sporadically and then they eat, eat 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 and then they hide again. Yeah. And if there weren't enough resources, I don't know if I'd be able to like catch it because i do breed fruit flies now but getting them at the right time and everything oh, is, god Fr- so
1: breeding fruit flies is such a pain in the ass it is the you.
0: biggest pain in the ass and i tell you what for three frogs it is not worth it <laughs> no
1: i've got dart frogs and i've got you know i feed the fruit flies to micro geckos and stuff like that yeah and f- f- they're supposedly wingless, or uh, flightless. Yeah, flightless.
2: Yeah, but they end up flying. Yeah. Yeah. But they're yeah. not,
1: because they. it's like, uh, I, I think it's like anytime it gets a little bit warm, mm-hmm. you keep them a little bit too warm, the gene for
0: flight reactivates, <laughs> and then they're yeah. freaking everywhere. <laughs> it might be. I mean, ours get out in the gap beside the, like... I have done everything in my power. I took some (laughs) industrial strength silicon. I made it so the door can no longer slide open. You can't have a gap there. And then there was like this tiny half millimeter gap and they were still getting through. So now I have foam in that bit. Doesn't matter, they'll find a way. They're still getting out. And this, my partner does not enjoy that fact, so. And My partner
1: does not either.
0: Yeah. Yet, all all I of have. that for
1: for three frogs is just not worth it. So I'm thinking of maybe getting some dark frogs. <laughs> uh, well, I was gonna say I've been experimenting with um, bean beetles. Ah, uh, yeah. Which are, are you know they're like a little tiny weevil, mm-hmm. which a lot of people like, but they don't breed fast enough compared yeah. to the the Drosophila, the you know the fruit flies. So, uh, you know, if I do that, I'm gonna have to have like a a giant bin of, <laughs> of yeah weevils.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. at least they don't take a huge amount of um, uh, TLC, especially in comparison to the fruit flies, which you know you have to change like once a week. <sighs> yeah,
1: the fruit flies suck, and if you don't <laughs> if you don't pay attention to them, they get overrun with uh, grain mites. Yeah, and dye, yeah. And so that's my a stock thing. is
0: fortunately completely free of mites because I got it from a good breeder. But yeah, yeah.
2: Sucks. Give, give us a give us an update on, on the gonatodes and on the Sicilians. Yeah, I was about to Is say the Spheros.
1: Yeah, so the spher- the Sicilians. There's nothing to say. They're they're <laughs> in their box. But that's too late. Yeah. Yep. The uh, the spheras are. I've got the pair. They're actually right next to me, and I've got the pair of of the uh, abagularis together now. The fuscus. 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 Whatever. You know what I meant. The yellow-headed gecko uh, are together now. The female's big enough to be in with the male. So uh, I don't think she's big enough to mate yet, but they're co fine. They're eating together. They're, you know, they're good. i actually moved my one male, Vitatis, Vitatis. Uh, up here. He's in with my darts now. so he's Cool. They on. get along okay?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I he's have any problems you don't have a problem with it because i i would imagine it's fairly humid in the in the dark frog environment cuz vitellas are usually from like drier
1: yeah um well i let that tank like i give it a... cuz it's um dendrobates they're not like yeah uh, they're not picky really mm-hmm. <laughs> so i i'll spray it down every couple of days and it'll you know and then it dry, I let it dry out a little bit so but they're all you're doing great. Yeah. That's
3: all. Awesome. Cool. Very cool. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, from my side, I <laughs> since the last episode I finished my so I got my grant, uh, finished my contract in Konstanz, moved across the country to Potsdam where I have started my postdoc here working on um, a new and exciting project. So I don't know if I'd mentioned before what my project is um, that this grant was for. Um, but basically we are developing further you know the the museumic methods so the methods for sequencing um, genetics from old museum material and the plan for this project is to go and and try to delve deeper into sequencing the um, the nuclear genome from these museum specimens because Mm -hmm. Most work until now has been trying to get mitochondrial sequences out of museum specimens. Turns out that's pretty feasible because mitochondrial copy number is very high. Um, nuclear stuff is much harder. And if these things have been fixed in formalin, it's even worse because formalin makes crosslinks between the, d- the DNA and makes it very, very difficult to sequence it. So.
2: Which is most stuff. Most stuff has been f- fixed in formalin,
0: right? Actually, no. So there was a, there's a period... So formalin didn't become used as a fixative in museum specimens until around the 1890s, 1880s. Oh. Before then, al- I mean, it, it hadn't even then, really though. been discovered until 1880s. So yeah, until then it was alcohol. Yeah. Um, I think spirits. Yeah. And then after, so, so then there was a period of intensive and increasing formalin usage but that trend eventually went away again and things started being fixed in ethanol again. So there is this ambiguity. Drink,
1: don't drink the wet specimens. Don't drink wet, yeah. spe-
0: wet specimens. Absolutely not. <laughs> but there is there's this ambiguity between things that are fixed in ni- 1890 to about like the 1980s where Do you, you don't to- know
1: Do I was going to say, do you have to do an analysis on what they're it to figure it out?
0: So Uh, I am not currently aware of any analysis that exists to do that because if it did exist, I would be jumping on it because I think, like I was thinking about NMR, this this method for basically getting a frequency spectrum of the liquid, and -hmm. then you'd be able to see, okay, this is the formalin spike or whatever. I don't know if that has been done before. It would be useful, of course but for now we are basically just going to treat all of the old specimens from that time window as though they were fixed in formalin and just because all it does is add additional like care care steps to increase and the it, And the ex- and
2: explain why it's so important that we are able to sample old specimens because that's very Well,
0: important. I mean, so in in the case of my project, which is focused on the co-filing microhylid frogs, so just one group of frogs from Madagascar. There are lots of species complexes, but we can't resolve the species complexes in many cases because we don't know the identity of the actual species that's the reference. So, for example, Platypelus grandis. This is a big um, tree frog uh, of, this, of this group. There are four, three, three or four available synonyms. So names that are synonymized with it, thought to be the same thing, but there are also now four or five deep genetic lineages that are assigned to Platypalus grandis. So one of those is the real Platypalus grandis, and then we need to figure out, are the other things also that species? Probably not. And which are the available names really the same species as that one, or are they one of those deep genetic lineages and then instead of making a new name, we would do our due diligence and erect or resurrect that old name.
1: How do you factor in the changes that are happening with these old wet specimens over time? You know, like, how are they diagnostic? Because I'm thinking of, like, uh, Dendrobate's Leucomela, where, you know, where the name given to it was Means White. right. But it it depends on the
2: type series, right? You have to take into consideration what the type series is. That's what you want. Exactly,
0: and in my case, I'm specifically sampling the name-bearing type, so the The, holotype holotype. or the lectotype or the syntypes, and we're using those as a as the means to basically definitively and absolutely declare this is what the species really is.
3: Short of some kind
0: of contamination, we rule out any question then, and that saves generations of effort having to clarify this problem because we just say, look, this is the answer. There's no question about it. This is the species that it is. And now we don't have to, like what you're mentioning, Ethan, with the Dendrobates, part of that problem is that the type specimens look very different from the species in life right but the genetics doesn't have that problem okay the genetics in fact overcome that problem so but until now I've problem. been doing this with micro CT but now we have the right. genetics on top of it which is just so much better
1: and there's enough information there the fidelity of that information is still yeah good So the, the, at, at least the fidelity
0: them. of the of the mitochondrial DNA um, okay. actually last year uh, in, in actually two papers that we published last year are um sequencing mitochondrial DNA from types, from type specimens. I think they were stored in Paris and in London. And we um we were able to identify which genetic lineage the types belong to, including the synonyms, and then describe new species. So we described Mantidactylus ambuni because we were able to figure out that Mantidactylus um, ambriensis is a different species. And the same is true of Mantidactylus radaca, which is another um, group. So, so far we've been mostly doing this in Mantidactylus, and now I'm moving to a different family of frogs, the Microhylids, uh, to and, do it and further.
2: And also I would imagine, and I, I'm sure, that the, one of the big importance of developing methods like this is that now we are going to be able to sample lineages or species that are extinct.
0: Exactly. And,
2: and that is super important.
0: Yeah, that's, so that's huge. There's also the fact that over time the specimens themselves degrade. degrade. Yeah. So last, uh, actually just um, about a month ago, we published a, another paper on scafia-free, which we've already been mentioning, these little rain, rain frogs from Madagascar. And we, we looked in that paper, at the, the type specimens of six different names, and they are just, I mean, the, the paper is titled Into the Chamber of Horrors, <laughs> Um, an integrative revision blah 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 and because those specimens look as though someone has trodden on them twice <laughs> and um, uh, so, so getting the identity of them is not clear and you know that's just a hundred years since they were described in another yeah. 200 years there may be nothing left but if we right. get the genome sequence now or as much data out of them as we can at the moment we have a permanent digital record of what the specimen was. It's real phylogenetic identity. In the same way that now taking a micro CT scan, I have a digital record of how the animal looked, at least its skeleton and maybe its, its external surfaces as well. Right. So it's all part of this, like, increasing the, um, the long-term um, survivorship of these finite specimens that are of unparalleled value. Like the the name bearing specimens are irreplaceable. And the only thing we can do is try and ensure as much as possible that they are not falling apart and going to waste and all that stuff.
2: And for people that don't know, and we will, will, will explain this quickly, when a species is described, you use one specimen that represents that species that name that's called the holotype it can be also a type series it can be several species several specimens but, but what they do is that those particular specimens represent the morphological traits that that species and in this case a molecular trait that that species should have
0: is defined by but It's yeah. not even that they should have it's i mean morphologically this is a bit weird because one specimen can't capture all of the variation but genetically, it is, it's basically this is the anchor point. So if you go back to mammoth, for instance... This is, this is instance, the, av-
1: the average... Uh,
0: it's <laughs> some, sometimes it's like the average, but it, it, the really important thing is that everything must be referenced to that specimen to make exactly. sure. So the, if, if you find out that things within the type series, this happens sometimes, inside the type series there are multiple different species, which one carries the name... Determines which one is the actual species. Exactly. So that is sometimes, historically, you would have syntypes, which are multiple different specimens that are of equal taxonomic value. They're all carrying the name. Yeah. But if they are multiple different species, it's totally unclear what the actual species is. And then you designate a lectotype from the syntypes that is now the name bearing specimen. So this gets very complicated. But the important thing is that that one is now the one to which everything must be compared. Now, make that an order, we should make
2: an episode about this, because this is very interesting, and I think we should make an episode about particular this part of taxonomy.
0: Because yeah, well, I, mean, I think a lot
2: of people don't understand it.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's, a, it's an important thing to understand like the, the different pieces that come together to make a taxonomic description. Yeah, because and there's can, lectotypes, same types,
2: that. neotypes, when you have yeah. to rename a, a, f- from the same locality. <laughs> and and you oh, yeah. so there's a...
1: So let's say that I, I discover a brand new species, Uh but the individual that I capture and, and let's say kill to prove the existence of this holotype happens to have, it's a freak and it happens to have two heads. What happens then?
0: Well, it, it, um, it depends on whether it truly is a new species or not. And it's not a new species defined by the fact that it has two heads. Historically and morphologically, in the in the fossil record, this is way harder. <laughs> because if you have an aberrant specimen in the fossil record, you have no way of proving that it's aberrant except for collecting lots and lots and lots of one fossils. Because
1: it's a one, which then right? never exactly.
2: happens, because there are never 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 lots and lots and lots of fossils. Well, usually. seldom there are some cases. Very few, of very few. Yeah, yeah. That's and even like those, a, you, and even yeah. and even those, usually come from different strata, and you don't know or they, or or they're, you cannot. 100% know no, that they were <laughs> coexisting at the same time. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So still, I mean, if you have genetic data from it, you can now use the, the genetics to basically say, okay, well, this is identical to something else that's already described, so my species is invalid. Or you can say, this one truly is very different, and therefore it should be described. If you find later specimens that don't look like it morphologically, but match it genetically, then you start having problems. Because it could be that they have captured the mitochondrion from this thing, and that they're actually not the same species. Right. So then you have to look at the nuclear gene. So you have
1: some kind of horizontal gene transfer going on. That, yeah. yeah,
0: hybridization yeah. basically. They yeah. they steal. This happens all the time. So things steal the mitochondria of other species, and that happens through one introgression event that then gets bred, basically true bred, to capture that that one piece. Um, so it it creates this weird um landscape of okay well the mitochondrial stuff says this and we weight a lot of our taxonomy based on what the mitochondrial stuff says because that's how barcodes work but if you don't have the nuclear dna you can't be absolutely certain that you're not dealing with uh this mitochondrial capture and that's part of the reason if we circle all the way back to my project part of the reason i've been saying okay well Until now, we've had good success sequencing um, mitochondrial stuff, but without the nuclear stuff, we can't be certain. And so my project is trying to get that nuclear data. Um, And and just for the listeners who aren't aware, your cells contain basically two sets of DNA. One is in the mitochondrion, the powerhouse of the cell, and the other is in the nucleus, which is the place where most of the code is, is kept.
2: The mitochondria is largely passed through mothers and largely yes. and not always not almost exclusively almost exclusively and and then the uh, nuclear is passed through father, is, fathers. is
0: well nuclear is combined right it's a yeah, combination combined, of your parental a, traits yeah. yeah and if you're a plant it can also um, no, it, 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 gets not, it gets very weird gets very
2: we're not talking about those here yeah
0: so so the one thing i wanted to mention um uh that we sort of skip past is If you are sampling now, because it's now possible, to sequence DNA from specimens that are 10,000, 20,000 years old, and then you sequence something that's much younger, so if you're dealing with a mammoth, for instance, and you sequence a mammoth from a certain time period and it has a specific name, and you have one from a later time period and it has a specific name, uh, sorting out the identity of those different species is really complicated because one can just simply be a direct descendant of the other. And this is where species definitions get all mixed up.
2: That just get angry happened. And what, you d- what, you d- what you're saying just was published like a month or so, or like a month or so ago with the Colombian mammoth was found to be a hybrid. Yes.
0: By the- my new working group here in Potsdam. So that's my, so the group that I have joined here in Potsdam are actually ancient DNA Uh, researchers mostly. And they almost all work on mammals. Um, But they have been pioneering a lot of this stuff in, in terms of ancient DNA and also in terms of archival DNA, so these museum specimen stuff so yeah no it's uh it's very and by the cool way when i do.
2: when i say hybrid i don't mean when i say hybrid species i don't mean actual hybrid as well people understand that, that they cannot breed and all that that's not what well I it means.
0: was in this case it really was a hybrid species so it might have been a spontaneous combination of two different yeah, yeah but i mean like they groups. were
2: not they were not they were able to breed and all that it's like people have this thing in their mind like a yes. mule that's right. not what i'm trying that's not, not what i'm saying thing.
1: Yeah. Well, and it, so, I, I think also we're so used to thinking of species as these clear finite, units. These yeah. clear units. But when it comes to deep time, that's especially not true. It's mm-hmm. like picking frames out of a film. You yes. know?
0: very much so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um time time is a wibbly wobbly thing and <laughs> um we fortunately, don't have to deal with that very much. So when I'm talking about my museum specimens, these things are at most 100 years old. And, okay, if they were cichlids, they might be different species, but they're not. And so this is, they're frogs, and it takes two million years, more or less, give or take, in most cases, to make a new frog species. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a really long um Maybe uh, maybe, with that, on...
1: maybe with that attitude. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um that was a, a long tangent on um on just my my new postdoc but it's uh, it's an exciting thing so i'm the pi on this project and i don't have any students on it so it's just me and the lab techs um but it's going to be really fun so i'm excited already i'm like getting together i tell you what getting specimens from museums around the world during a pandemic <laughs> when in my grant i was like oh i'll just fly to london and i'll fly to paris uh, oh
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, things are things are not as they as I had I'm hoped. Sh- I'm sure yeah. it, like people are not super keen on internationally shipping jars is, of alcohol. Yeah, well, so you can you take the
0: specimens out of the alcohol and you wrap them in, in alcohol soaked towel to ship them. But the problem is the shipping services right now are super delayed. So the specimens that I would need from London and the specimens that I need from Paris, they're basically saying they won't ship them. And so it's either I fly or I simply wait. So right now I'm prioritizing getting specimens from Germany because that's the easiest thing for me to do. And actually most of the specimens that are relevant are in Germany. So that's... um, That's getting kicked off. And I mean, other other than that, I, I don't know what else I've been doing. As I say, I moved country and we've got nice nice new digs and our apartment is twice as large as the old one, which is important because um, both of us have been doing so much home office that um, this is our new lives. So yeah, no, it's fun. Oh, and we got married. I guess that also wasn't. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, that would be important. Yeah, that's that's, yeah. that's a really important thing. So um, my wife and I got married in October amid the pandemic. We have delightful pictures of our of us wearing masks inside the town hall and stuff. So um, it was it was not the wedding that we had been hoping for, but it was still nice that you know family was able to be there and um, and it you know it was in in southern Germany in Konstanz, which was beautiful setting. And I mean, it rained all day, but oh well. <laughs> It was still pretty nice. So yeah, I mean that's um, that's that's the background. I guess that's the update from all of us. Uh, it was it was like rain
1: on your wedding day?
0: It was like rain on my wedding. Day. <laughs> How ironic! Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Except not ironic at all because that's uh, not what irony is. None of those things are irony. I don't yeah. I know. I know.
1: <laughs>
0: in my English class in school, we had uh, this was our lesson in what irony is not. Um, <laughs> So, shall we, shall we talk about some science?
3: Sure. Let's talk
0: about some science. Um, well, okay, dear listeners, it's been a time since the last episode. And so we thought we would talk you through every single paper that has ever been published since April last year and <laughs> April this <laughs> JK, we're going to talk about four papers that have been published in the last two months because ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Um, and in a very selfish manner two of the papers are going to be ones that I co-authored.
1: Well, I was going to say should we should we discuss our a slightly different methodology for this uh, section? Yeah. Going forward?
0: Yeah, so rather than having I guess this is the whole thing we've just been talking about is has been works in progress. But for the most part, we're going to tone down a little bit the works in progress because eh, it's you guys get enough of this as it is. Um you can instead, hit us up
1: you can hit us up on Twitter if you want to hear us bitch about, you know, yeah, whatever it is about all kinds of stuff. Um,
0: <laughs> instead, we're going to be talking, uh, pretty briefly, usually about papers. So we're just going to choose like between I don't know four and six papers, and we'll we'll talk about them in a little more depth than we would previously have done. But we won't be going through the marathon like recording craziness that we've been having in the past. So we're going to try. And I know we've said each, this now repeatedly. We're each on the selecting
1: shuttle. something. That's yeah. the, the other thing. Is this that is we're, also we're, true. We're we're bringing you our choice.
0: Yeah, so. we're trying to get sort of a mixed because I don't know if you've noticed, but it's been a little bit biased toward things that I'm interested in. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna sort of move in that direction and see what we can do. Um, And, uh, yeah, it'll be, I think it'll be a fun adventure. We're also, uh, I think we've promised this now three or four different times on the show, but we're going to try and keep our episodes shorter, um, to make everybody's life better. We're doing great. Yeah, we're doing super, (laughs) super, super great. Um, Uh, let's talk about some teeny tiny fucking chameleons. Yeah. 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 So the first paper we're going to talk about is, um, by Frank Glav and colleagues, including yours truly. Um, where we describe this tiny chameleon called Burkizia nana. Which, I don't know, maybe you heard about, because it uh, got some quite nice press attention. Um, we published it in Scientific Reports, which is a, not, not my favorite journal in the world, but they're okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had some frustration Mark. with them last year. I did not enjoy it. Oh. Uh, but, no, it, in general, it's a, it's a pretty decent journal. And the, the chameleon is extremely, extremely small. So the, and the adult male... And I'm sorry, male, this, is, this is B-nana. B-nana, yeah. And dear listeners, I didn't realize the pun <laughs> until the paper was published. <laughs> which is really embarrassing because I am a huge proponent of banana for scale. You and I are, didn't make I the can't connection. believe you
1: didn't do that on purpose. Knowing I, you, you I didn't even choose the name.
0: <laughs> so, this is just a happy coincidence. So, ah, in 2012, okay. a chameleon called Brockiziia micra was was published, and now this one is smaller than Brockiziia micra, so we needed a smaller word and so nana is the feminine of nano which everybody knows from nanotechnology and whatnot. And so we had to use the feminine form because Burkezia is feminine and Burkezia nana is the name. And then it just so happens that it shortens to B-nana, which is beautiful. Um, Anyway, so adult males of this this teeny tiny chameleon reach 13.5 millimeters in adult body size, which is, um, if you have ever eaten long grain rice, it's about as long as one long grain rice.
1: <laughs> Which is insane. Um,
0: sure. It is very, very, very small.
1: Is, now, it, this, is it the small... It's not... It, it's in the running for smallest vertebrate, right?
0: Yeah. So... Yeah. Okay, not smallest vertebrate. Because the tail gives it a huge disadvantage
3: oh, compared
0: okay. to especially tiny fish oh. and tiny frogs. Yeah. Um, but it is the smallest amniote. Okay. Now... Amniotes uh, are the group of tetrapods that lay mostly hard-shelled eggs, or give birth to live young, but they have an amnion, that's why they're called amniotes, um, which means that they do the some re- egg, yeah, some exactly. the,
2: the, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, they, so anamniotes would, for example, be amphibians, and the amniotes are the reptiles, including the birds, and the mammals. Um, and so the competition here are obviously other chameleons, some of which are very, very small, and the Spherodactylus. So Spherodactylus, Parthenopion, and, uh, Aurese. Aurese. Aurese, and there's another very small one that I can't remember. Um, they compete for the rank of a very, very, very smallest reptile. And depending what metric you use... <laughs> will determine which, which species you consider to be the smallest. So if you only measure adult males, Brachisia nana is the champion. But females are much larger. <laughs> uh. And so if you go by average size, it's probably a dead heat between like Ariase and, um, and Brachisia nana. If you go only by female size, I think Ariase beats it out because the female of Ariase is... Uh, smaller than the female mama. I think that's how it works out and then that's only if you don't include the tail If you include the tail, I think the chameleon wins because it has a very short tail and the geckos have long tails Etc. Yeah, but
2: so, with lizards you, all, you never include the tail Yeah,
1: we, we well, generally
2: have, yeah, don't they,
0: include the tail
1: SVL. Yes,
2: yes not right. the vein length is always the top measurement.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like talking to the bird people how they measure the bird do they include the beak or not that's a <laughs> difficult difficult question um yeah so so this chameleon is is really cool and one of the things that we one of the reasons it got quite a bit of press attention is that something that um that frank realized in when we were doing this study uh so frank was my one of my two doctoral advisors he was my master's super, uh, 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 thesis advisor. I've worked with him for a very, very long time. And he was like, yeah, well, brachysia tend to have pretty large genitals in comparison to their body size. I mean, these are tiny, tiny animals, but they seem to have relatively large hemipenes, you know, the paired reproductive organs that the males have. And so he was like, okay, I wonder if the species that are smallest have the relatively largest genital size how does that relate to to body size and so he went and he measured uh, all the specimens or many of the specimens that we have available at the museum in munich and as it turns out he was absolutely right the smaller the chameleon especially in brachysia <laughs> these tiny chameleons the relatively larger the size of the genitals which is weird Ah, uh, uh, the
1: majesty of nature.
0: Exactly. And then we were like, I don't know why this is. We'll leave it as sort of an open question, and we submitted the paper. And one of the reviewers was like, I think I know what could be causing this. And I, the reviewer was anonymous, so we don't know who to thank. But the reviewer suggested that what's going on, and I think that they are dead on the money. They suggested that what's going on is that the female, who is not miniaturizing as strongly as the male... Well, his genitals still have to couple with her genitals in order for reproduction to be successful. And so if she's not miniaturizing, but he is, the only bit of him that matters in terms of their (laughs) reproductive success is the size of his genitals that they they fit. So you would expect his body size to reduce, while his genitals do not because of the coupling
2: action. But now the question is, what's the ecological pressure that is making male bruchesia become smaller?
0: Great question.
1: Is it a sexual selection thing?
0: Could be sexual selection. Could be environmental selection. Could be niche partitioning between males and females. Who <laughs> knows? But we at least have like a reasonable hypothesis for why we have this case where smaller and smaller chameleons still retain relatively larger so, relative genital sizes.
1: So in a few million years, could you have like parasitic male chameleons that are just basically... Like little genitals moving through the forest, who floor knows? Or little anglerfish
0: I mean, type, you know? It could be, it could happen. Uh, so far, that hasn't happened in tetrapods, <laughs> but that's not to say that I mean, where there is a will,
1: I'm just trying to take this to its logical conclusion here, and I, you
0: know. I tend to agree. I, I'm not sure that the genitals will be able to feed themselves, so you probably need. Something like the, the anglerfish where they atrophy after coupling. Right.
1: They, right, they couple and then it's just like attached to her. For, well,
0: it's know. worth noting that Brachizia are famous for the fact that the male Shortly. rides around on the female once he finds her. I'm telling you. See? So? I'm <laughs> onto this. We're not far. We're not far.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, so that, uh, would make a, that would make sense why they he would need to be, he has a pressure to become smaller. Because then she well, has to yeah. carry less weight.
0: More convenient.
2: Yeah. I mean, possible. that would, so, make, I would definitely so, mix exploring. But
1: yeah. I, that means I'm not far off, because that... <laughs> 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 I'm
2: telling you. They have well, to they,
0: have a dispersal phase, though, Ethan, because yeah, yeah, otherwise yeah, yeah. It, you have inbreeding like crazy. Yeah, yeah
2: and also and also, you, can, you have to remember that tetrapods can only become so small. There's a certain limit to yes. how small yeah. you can get.
0: And this is the question. This is one of the things that motivates me the most. It's something that I'm trying to like set up as my big sort of motivator. This is also the reason I'm so interested in the co-phylene microhylids because they have miniaturized many times. Why are things getting small and what is stopping them from getting smaller? So I think that the chameleons and like looking at the chameleons and looking at the geckos, there's a reason we seem to have a sort of stacking effect at this very very small end where nobody can agree which one's the smallest because getting smaller is real hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a it's a question of physics potentially? It, so that, yes,
0: there's there's certainly going to be a physical component. We see that yeah. especially in endo endothermic animals where like at some point you can't be endothermic anymore and survive. Yeah. It's just as a as a vertebrate, now of course bumblebees and whatever make this whole thing yeah, a little bit complicated, different. but the you know the the bee hummingbird and the the um, Etruscan shrew these are very very small uh, birds and mammals respectively, they have also seemed to reach a sort of physiological limit where they they can't eat any more than they're already eating, <laughs> otherwise they're they're sort of reaching you know the. It just, yeah. energetically, it doesn't work anymore. So that's an important physical aspect. There are all kinds of other things, like how your heart works and how your eyes exactly. work and your ability to locomote and the, ability, the availability of resources. So I think one of the reasons we see the miniaturized species most in the tropics is simply the, the trophic level of the uh, detritivores that are living inside the, the, the leaf litter is available to these tiny frogs and these tiny chameleons, these tiny geckos, Um, that are running around that is not necessarily available elsewhere. And then I have a pet hypothesis that can also be driving um, miniaturization, which is related to parasites. If you imagine your parasite is unable to miniaturize alongside the host, eventually you can escape the parasite pressure altogether by
1: simply not having enough space for the parasite to live in. Does that also mean that potentially you could evolve into a parasite?
0: Uh, it, that's a hard jump to make, but it's been made many, many, many times. There are no... there aren't a lot.
1: There aren't a lot of tetrapod parasites.
0: Yeah, and but, and know. most of the tetrapod parasites are sort of not true parasites. So, right. like, a,
2: like a vampire mind. bat is not, not really a parasite. parasite. No, yeah. It's not yeah. A
0: parasite at all. And I mean, yeah. oxpeckers are famous for like keeping the wounds open of their hosts. But it's not really parasitism in the classical sense, especially it's right. not obligate parasitism. Right. So that's right. an important caveat. And that yeah. birds like to pick at
2: things regardless. regardless. So yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> i just you know
1: I, from a speculative evolutionary standpoint, I find that kind of fascinating. Like, you know, the 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 path towards avoiding parasitism could also be the path to. Becoming a parasite yourself
0: potentially if you have the resources to exploit um, I I can't imagine that happening to a let's say a lizard um, a legged lizard but I could imagine it happening to a blind snake for instance that happens to find out that living inside another animal is a good source of food or you know um, you're
1: already kind of a wormy guy exactly exactly
0: Worminess seems to go hand in hand a lot with parasitism. So. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: yeah, so, so I think miniaturization is one of the most exciting things. Just the number of questions, right, that, that faces us is, is super cool. So there will certainly be a lot more miniaturization content on this show in the future. Um, but let's move on to the second paper.
1: <laughs> but not in the length of our podcast, apparently. No, we just... <laughs> no. Oh, we're doing okay we're not we're that right. bad we're not that we're bad. All right. we're all right right um plus we have to discuss the paper. Paper. It's not like we can just i know talk about I, it's i'm as i'm as at fault as as anybody
0: yeah <laughs> and i mean i'm thoroughly enjoying it i think that yeah. the discussion so far has been super stimulating and great I, I plus
2: think. my papers will the, the ones that i will comment will be super fast and you can extend
1: okay. yeah I thought you were going to be like, and my papers are going to blow you away. No, oh, no,
2: no. They were super fast because they're just basic taxonomic stuff. So,
0: Speaking of papers that will blow you away, did you hear about the geckos that glow? That's our next paper.
2: Uh, because of you, I don't want to hear anything that glows anymore. Not because of your paper. Your paper has been great. It's because what other things have been done with that.
0: Oh, I tell you what. Okay. Let's get some Bullshit. Okay, listeners, we're going to have a breakdown of how biofluorescence works. Are you ready? Are you ready? Your ability to see UV light has no relevance to whether or not you can see fluorescence. Because if the fluorescence is triggered by UV, it is emitted within the visible spectrum. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see it in a photograph or whatever. (laughs) so uv comes in green light comes out hey presto it's fluorescing in a visible way now many animals as it turns out fluoresce probably coincidentally so
2: thank you that doesn't mean well
1: we've, we've talked before about how bones in general yes yeah fluoresce all bones fluoresce
0: all kinds of shit fluoresces for who knows why it just does your teeth fluoresce go into a nightclub yeah i mean when the pandemic is over smile once you've pulled down your mask but don't do it for very long and you will see that your teeth are fluorescing
2: like crazy yeah that doesn't mean that we have specialized colors and stuff on our teeth to fluoresce
0: (laughs) this does not have an adaptive function it's just it's a coincidence now If you look at many of the examples of, you know, biological systems where this is clearly, you know, they are fluorescing very strongly, um, that have now been shown, most of the cases that have been published, especially the reptile cases so far, let's take chameleons out of it for a second, because chameleons are a little bit weird, we can talk about that in a second, but if you look at the geckos that have been shown to fluoresce so far, what you see is the bone fluorescing through the skin. skin of most geckos is pretty translucent. That happens because all bones fluoresce. That is not, not an all, not adaptive thing.
1: It, it's not only translucent, it's also super thin. It's like, yeah, thin. it's, you know. I mean,
2: you can rip it pur- off without Purposely even that way, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a scape. In some
1: case. yeah. In some cases, it just sloughs off in your hand and they get away from yeah. it. Yeah,
0: yes.
2: so, so that's exactly what they evolved at.
1: <laughs> yeah. so
0: the ability to see fluorescence in every animal doesn't necessarily make that fluorescence interesting. That This is also true in, in the amphibians. I think we talked about this in a previous episode of the podcast where there was this paper that showed lots and lots and lots of amphibians fluoresce under UV light or under blue light or whatever, but that the, the whether or not there's biological significance there is very debatable, especially when it's super widespread and there's so the important thing to know about any case of fluorescence is how, what the quantum yield is. Which is really just a fancy way of saying, of the electrons that, or the, the, of the photons that go in, how many get emitted out? And that's basically your quantum yield. And if you are very, very efficient, you have a very high quantum yield. So you, you shoot a lot, of elect, a, a lot of photons back out again and those high levels of quantum yield are really rare. Most things have extremely low quantum yields. So if you remember the paper by Tabuada and colleagues where they looked at these um, Boana punctata frogs very bright green fluorescence. This fluorescence is, has a very high quantum yield. If you compare that fluorescence with the fluorescence of chameleons, I think it's more than an order of magnitude stronger, that fluorescence, than the chameleon fluorescence. So whether or not the chameleons can actually see the fluorescence that their tubercles have is an active source of debate. So anything that's, that has a high quantum yield is potentially biologically viable because there's a chance that an animal would be able to see it under natural conditions. So high UV radiation doesn't happen naturally because otherwise we wouldn't exist. <laughs> um, so that pulls us toward the, the question of, well, if we can see it under strong UV sources, can it be biologically relevant? What What criteria can we use to decide or to identify whether or not something is biologically relevant? And one of the things that my colleagues and I have argued in the paper that we're talking about here, which is by David Putzel and colleagues, I'm the last author in this paper, which is great fun. Um, One of the things that we argue is the arrangement of fluorescent areas on the body is super important. Because if all of the fluorescence is sort of localized to your, like, to a specific area of the body, that argues that maybe there is some kind of a functionality. So in the chameleons, you have tubercles on the head. The chameleons have crests on their heads. They have bright colors on their heads. Everything suggests that the chameleons look at the heads a lot in order to identify each other and to make decisions about mate choice and everything. Now we come to Pachydactylus rangi, the web-footed gecko or Namib sand gecko. And this all is of the, a,
1: all of the fl- the fluorescence is on the stomach. It's exactly, all, it's right. but it's it's not
0: on the stomach. It's on the flank. It's on the, the lower flan- flank. The flank. Yeah. So if you actually you look at a ventral shot of these geckos that we've now we we published the discovery of fluorescence <laughs> in these geckos. If you look at a ventral shot, you see that the belly is clean of fluorescence. Okay. And it's only along so the side. It's like, a, it's like side. a racing
1: stripe on the It's side,
0: exactly yeah. like the glow lights underneath a Ferrari. Yes. Just, just beside the door. <laughs> now, the reason that Ferraris have those glow lights is because predators from above. No, um, <laughs> The reason the geckos... So what we think is happening is that this fluorescence is bright enough that nocturnal animals, which anyway have extremely good color vision at night, like geckos... Can see it over substantial different distances, even under moonlight or in the um, at dusk and dawn. And the the light is potentially bright enough that it would give them away to predators. And so the some primary predators of these animals are birds,
2: which can and see it.
0: Which which. which Nah, but birds can see UV, but they can't necessarily see these greenish tones. I don't, I don't know. So we haven't looked at the actual optical spectrum of the, of the potential predators. But by localizing the coloration to the lower flank and around the eye, any predator above the body can't see the fluorescence clearly. Okay. But a predator at eye level, or a... a con-specific con at eye level, okay. can it's, see it very clearly.
1: It's almost have a, like, like counter shading. It, it, it's, uh, like it's evolved so that it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's like
2: you the, can't see
1: the, the fluorescence the from f- the
2: top. Okay, so wait a minute. The flank coloration is something that occurs in a wide variety of lizards, right? Like Even most lizards that have like ocelli on their body is usually on their sides. So, but this is that the is lower flank. So not so, just so directly the, along the side. So this is the paraventral region, right? Yeah. Okay. I I buy that. The thing around the eye, I don't know, because that is something I make a case in all my paleo art, is that it's reptiles have a fixation with putting flashing signs around the eye, and that includes birds, most lizards, most birds. They all have totally. stuff around the eye. So I I, I don't know. I mean, the but that's about a, the paraventral. I,
0: yeah, yeah, but but that's I think a nice argument for saying well then they can probably see it because oh definitely it's no sitting I, around I have no arguments
2: yes I have no argument about that I'm just saying that to make it like a, like, a, like a not being able to see to, to be seen by other animals mm-hmm. I don't know about that about the eye stuff but, but to be okay, to, the is maybe not relevant there signal. but
0: along the flank is certainly relevant and yeah, if you look yeah. at photographs of the animals taken in pure dorsal view you can barely see it on the side of the eye and you cannot see the flank coloration.
1: Another interesting thing that with Namib sand geckos is this is a species that frequently lifts itself off the ground. Yeah, Uh, it almost has like a erect legged stance that it very high. Yeah, for a gecko, and I wonder I wonder if that plays into how it's showing off this coloration.
2: Plus, geckos tend to have those things like like. Gonatodes, by the way, has that. Mm-hmm. They have those things called scutcheons, which are larger scales in the paravental region that are usually different color. In vitados, they can be black when they're breeding. I don't know if yours have that, but if they have like a black areas around here, those uh, areas are, have larger scales and they're black. And, and that happens and Pac- in a wide variety of lizards.
0: Can Pachydactylis rangi have that? I, I have n- not heard of that.
1: I mean, just... No, 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 I'm not saying... That, I'm just saying that in... No, no, this is a gonatotus. Gonatotus, okay. I'm saying uh, gonatotus, uh, yeah.
2: they, they have that. Okay. So I'm saying that, in, that those kind of paraventral marking, markings occur. And, and for people here in the United States, Scaloporus famously has those yes. blue areas in the paraventral region.
0: Yeah. So what we, what we think is going on... And I, I mean, if you, if you look at a photograph of these animals taken at dusk or whatever the sort of whitish area along the side it has a faint yellow tint to it and i think that what we see in that of that yellow tint where that's coming from is actually the conversion of blue light into green light through this fluorescent mechanism Mm. so the the peak of fluorescence in these geckos is not in uv but in blue and when you look at one of these geckos, that light on that stripe on the side is not really pure white. It's actually sort of yellowish in color. What we haven't done yet is try to like take away bits of the spectrum in order to look at, you know, when does the greenish hue appear?
1: What's striking to me, I've, I've pulled up just to remind myself of the pattern on them. I pulled up a picture and what's striking me is that that white area where the fluorescence happens is really well defined. Like yeah. it's it's
0: And okay, so now we looked at the histology of of this thing. So first of all, no one has ever looked at the histology of Pachydactylus geckos before. It turns out that Pachydactylus rangii has almost no chromatophores at all. So the skin is hmm. basically colorless, which is an interesting thing. I mean I, I don't know how that plays out in the desert because it probably only works for a nocturnal animal because yeah. a lot of coloration in lizards is, is based on trying to not get fried by the sun, especially if you live in a desert. Um, by being nocturnal, you probably don't have that problem as much. But there's very, very low concentrations of anything. So we found out what part of the skin is actually causing the fluorescence, and the answer is iridophores. So that white area along the flank is extremely dense in iridophores. Now, there are two classes of iridophores in these geckos, which is weird because most lizards have one class of iridophores. Chameleons also have two, one of which is high up and one of which is low down in terms of the, the layers of the skin. And these geckos also have this superficial layer and a deep layer. And only the superficial layer fluoresces. And it seems that the fluorescence is localized to the iridophores. So they are the actual bit of the skin that's fluorescing. Now, we did not, because this this entire study was unfunded. So we have no, we didn't have the budget to go and like sequence the proteome of these cells or figure out exactly, you know, do, do all the kind of mass spec that you need to identify exactly the chemical that's fluorescing. That's something that we are now working on in collaboration with some other people. But um, it looks as though it's really the iridophores that are fluorescing. And it could be specifically the guanine crystals. So iridophores are um, cells that are packed full of guanine crystals, which are highly reflective. And it might be that the guanine crystals have something integrated into them that makes them fluoresce. Um, it's hard to, I mean, I have some preliminary data that says says some relevant stuff, but I can't talk about that. and. Um, Anyway, it looks like we are going to be able to figure out what the mechanism actually is in this in this case. And I think this is for me the most compelling case of functionality of the fluorescence in these geckos it, because or in in terms of all of the recent discoveries of fluorescence, it has the greatest potential to be functional because it is ridiculously bright. It's almost exactly as bright as the Boana punctata fluorescence. And it's localized in such a perfect way as to be functional or to make functional sense that you can easily make a justification for why this thing would have evolved yeah. you, you to look, have that localized I'm, there.
1: I'm looking at it and it looks functional. It really right. looks like a racing stripe, you know, yeah. like like a, you know...
0: And of course, you know, it could be that it's it's supposed to be white, the geckos see the white and therefore it's enough and the fluorescence is just a coincidence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I don't fully you know, buy yeah, that. It, it
1: <laughs> reminds you know what it almost reminds me of is like the the stuff people w- wear for walking or riding a bike at night, you know, like Yeah. like like they're no, worried true. about it's you know
0: and it's that color. That's yeah. a good way to put it. It is exactly that neon yellow color. Um, that, you know, is so, is so obvious to anyone who's running around. And we think that also, so these geckos are, um, they are very, they're kind of semi-social. So it turns out that they, you can keep them in social groups in a terrarium. And, and these, most of the research was actually done on the colony that David is breeding at home. Um, They're not easy animals to keep. They have a really, really low reproductive rate, so breeding them is a pain in the butt. But in the wild, they occur at low densities. And what might be happening is that this is a mechanism for them to see each other over long distances. This is the same habitat where barking geckos occur. And the barking geckos can hear each other over long distances, but then you give yourself away to predators. If you can see each other over long distances in the dunes, through this bright color, You might have an easier time running up to one another for mating
1: purposes. I was going to say, as someone who's kept and bred a lot of different geckos, uh, the norm in geckos is for males to be territorial. Mm -hmm. So just for listeners, uh, most male geckos you cannot cohab with most other male geckos. Yeah. Um, So to be a colony gecko, I I can only think of a handful of other types of geckos that you can do that with.
0: No, exactly. And these things, um, I think, well, I don't know if David has ever had any problems in terms of like conflict among the geckos themselves, but certainly um, he has a, a breeding group where he gets regularly um, offspring, um, which, is, which is super great. Yeah. Uh, so there was one last thing that I wanted to mention that I, I can't remember what it is now, but on the whole, I think this is a, such a cool thing like it's as I say you know I was involved in the discovery of the chameleon fluorescence I thought at the time it was pretty compelling and then basically just after we had discovered the chameleon thing David was like oh I was at home and I shone my new UV torch on the geckos and they (laughs) light up (laughs) and I was like oh okay well this is something we have to study now in detail so Um, it's been really cool to, to see another system come out and, ah, what I wanted to mention is what's really needed are behavioral studies. And that's something that we're also talking about somehow arranging. We can't, can't do it easily in captivity. Um, especially not in Germany. It's just for legal reasons and for ethical reasons, it's complicated. You need a lot of space. It needs to be in a, in a university, blah, blah, blah. But potentially, uh, field studies will be um, needed where you basically just make little corrals and you can study their behavior, which would be well, they, really cool.
1: They have pretty interesting behavior as it is, anyway. They're famous for that, the little dance that they do with their yeah. legs. Yeah. They're, they're trying to keep their legs off the hot sand. So yeah, like, the
0: fringe toed lizards do yeah. that too. Yeah. Yeah. They're really cool. So, yeah, um, that's, that's another exciting paper that I, I got to be involved in. It's been an exciting year. That one was also published in Scientific Reports, by the way. So, this is the. <laughs> I had three papers in a row published in Scientific Reports. And, um, well, two of them, the process was fine. One of them it was an absolute nightmare. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gabriel, you want to talk about some Ella elak- yeah, my, my,
2: my papers will be very short. Um, they're basically mostly focused on biogeographic. Um, issues and what I want mostly to say with both papers is how we are recently uh, understanding that species that have especially in neotropical areas species or tropic areas in general tropical areas um species that have wide distribution usually represent uh you know a bunch of uh, un, uh, understudied diversity within that taxon so both of my both of the papers that I'm going to talk about today uh, we'll deal with that about that. The first one uh, also has some implications for um, uh, the health of local populations. since It's a venomous species, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's the, the paper is by Dalvecchio et al. It was published in um, Journal of Natural History and his molecular and phenotypic data revealed a new Amazonian species of pit vipers. So so it's a new Bothrop species and um, it's not really new. It's more than it's now that basically you show that a a, a segment of the population that we thought it was one species now represents two species. And I want to talk about this paper because it's the same pattern that we see in several other many other species. There's basically now obviously uh, a north Amazonian taxon and a South Amazonian taxon and that happens in a lot of other animal groups, especially reptiles you always see like a Western Amazonian taxon and North Amazonian taxon and so the rivers are acting as barriers uh, didn't yeah. we
1: talk about that with the mata-mata right? yeah and, and uh... also
2: a lot of these things were refu- refugia during the Pleistocene mm-hmm. and they were segmented they were, the Amazon was not as widespread as it is now Mm-hmm. So um, the, a lot of these things evolved separately and uh, and now have, you know, joined together again by the Amazon. So <clears throat> basically we have this new species, which was called Oligobalinus, Bothrop's Oligobalinus, and is now distributed south of the Amazon River. The species that was, which was, in which was originally in, included, which is Bothrop's Actually, it's the opposite, no, I think it's the opposite. <coughs> I think it's the oligobalinos is the new taxon that is now from the north of the Amazon river, so uh, in the Guyanas, the Guyana Shield, southern Venezuela, northern Brazil, those the populations that were previously considered Bodrops Brazili are now waterdrops oligobalinos, and uh, the populations that are s- south of the Amazon River. Now, are still will be referred as water brasil as they were before, and the two species basically um, differentiate in the morphologically differentiate in the number of in the presence or absence of lateral trapezoidal lateral ba- uh, spots blotches on the sides of the body. That's how you can morphologically uh, recognize them. But the paper also deals with molecular studies, and they did a phylogeny of, of the... I think they did a phylogeny of the ta- of the taxes from the... Gyrar- they belong to the um, Botrop's Jararakusu group. I think so, yes. They do. Um, and the second paper that I'm going to talk about is basically the same issue, which is biogeography, understanding species that are wide distributions in reality represent a bunch of smaller taxa, the smaller, uh, more um, circumscribed to certain biogeographical regions. So the second paper is by Jowers et al. It was published in Organisms, Diversity and Evolution. And it's called Unraveling Unique Island Colonization Events in Elacistoclae's Frogs. Phylogeography, phylo- phylogeography, cryptid divergence, and taxonomical implications. So, Laeostoeclès is uh, microhylids. They're, yeah, they're microhylids. They are a famous genus of uh, microhylid, neotropical microhylid frogs. And for a long time, there were only a few species that were described. Uh, so, Surinamensis and bicolor, and they were found all over <laughs> South America. And obviously, that's not the case for several years now. Those you know, uh, herpetologists have been chipping away at those big populations and naming different taxa. And this is the latest iteration of that. Um, so this taxon, the new taxon, which was called Negro Gularis, I want to say. I don't remember exactly.
0: Yeah, Negro Gularis.
2: Yeah, Negro Gularis um, was described from Trinidad. And it is likely also found in the mainland in, in Venezuela, but I think originally it was the, it, the paper focuses on the Trinitarian population. Um, and it basically, it's interesting because they, they also find that, so what was known, um, uh, so w- what is known is that th- there were two species believed to occur in Trinidad. Lacystocleis Ovalis and Lacystocleis surinamensis, and uh, now we know that, and and they seem to now we know that one of those taxons belonged to uh, Negrogularis. This is the new name, and uh, what is interesting is that they now is that we know that there seem to have been two invasions of uh, Lacystocleis frogs into into Trinidad. One coming from Venezuela and one coming from Guyana. So there were two events which brought Elakistocheilus uh, frogs into Trinidad. The situation is not s- done by any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. There are still a lot of populations in mainland South America that need to be named of Elakistocheilus frogs. So expect numerous papers to come with yeah. more. There's types. a lot
0: of work to be done here. It's really interesting. So they so they they say this stuff is is related to ovalis, yes. right? And then in their, in their tree, they have multiple different lineages that are like SP, E, e <laughs> Ovalis, and yeah. then they have a number next to them, but they haven't yet figured out which species is Ovalis, right? Which lineage is the real one. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really interesting situation. I guess the, um. Uh, probably this is something where the methods that I'm using in my in my new postdoc will become yep. relevant because we, if you can figure out what the actual identity of ovalis is you can solve a lot of these problems.
2: Especially since well. ovalis is a, an old species it's a species that was yeah. seen a long time ago. Daudin,
0: 1802, originally described in the genus Bufo. I mean,
2: Somehow there's still the less Bufo really than you
0: Well, I mean, it was at the time, 1802, it could have been one of two general, right? It could have been either Bufo or Rana. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess it's a little bit more Bufo?
1: Yeah, well... Uh, Well, Hilo, maybe, you know... Yeah, I guess
0: Hilo would have been available
1: as well, Yeah. (laughs) Probably Since should this, have been in Hyla, really. Is things, it this, a tree it's, frog? It's, is a toad? No, is no, no. A, this, this—that's
2: <laughs> this, why I'm saying that it's probably a toad. It's the most resembling thing because it has short legs and. This, yeah, this, throw this, it in Bufo. And like are like all like they're similar to the microhylids we have in the United States. They are like called yeah. egg frogs because they look like an egg. They they have yeah. like oh okay okay. Yeah
0: so and they really do look like an egg that is yeah. such an apt description and they <laughs> yeah. they strongly resemble uh gastrophrine or yeah. gastrophrine yeah. um with the you know the sort of very pointed head i guess it's kind of typical microhylid. yeah uh,
2: it's the prototypical microhylid body and Very and
0: unlike has, all of Madagascar's microhylids.
2: <laughs> and the, the whole thing is that they have um, they have all the you know different populations that are now different species. They all have different ventral coloration. Dorsally, they look pretty similar, but you know they tend to have different ventral color patterns and stuff. And it's all about the venter. They have the
0: that's quite frequently the case in Elachistocleis, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think also Hippopacus has the same.
2: Thing. yeah the same by color It's a like it's by color also so they have a lot of stuff like that. so see yeah. my papers were pretty fast
0: yeah but i mean I, and,
2: and, and I, I just wanted i, really I just it. wanted to to call attention to the fact that you know we know biogeographically once you we, we are seeing all these barriers that people have to pay attention Once you have to see once you see a species and we've talked about this when we talked about iguanas before once you see a species that is widely distributed you can bet your money that there are more than one tax in there.
0: Yeah. Usually I think that's that's generally true. There are especially there for animals that are exception small like but yeah. 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 All right. Great. Shall we talk about some other shit?
1: Yeah. Sounds good. Let's um, do it. So, so that
0: was our that was our main science uh, section. Yes, And now, Ethan,
1: take it away. So I did not bring papers to the discussion. I, uh, being more involved in the herpetoculture world, uh, decided to talk about what's going on with the Lacey Act as of late. Um, And for those of you who don't know what the Lacey Act is, it's actually a really old uh, law. It's a federal law from 1900. And it deals in the trafficking of illegal wildlife and uh, plant including plants, not just animals. so it it includes things like lumber and paper, and it's a huge, huge thing. Wow um, And it deals with the interstate transport of it's basically a law that exists so that you can have a federal. Law that deals with these things. Um, so it's a huge thing, and I can't go. I'm not a lawyer. I can't go into the the all the 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 detail of it. Um, but I will say that the penalties involved with the Lacey Act vary a lot, and they vary based on your amount of uh, knowledge about what you're doing. So if you are Committing wildlife trafficking with full knowledge that you're doing so, the penalties for you are a lot more severe than if they were, that you were a uh, uninformed person, say, buying a smuggled animal and didn't know it. Seems um, reasonable. Right. I mean that part does. Yeah. <laughs> um, more recently the Lacey act in 2008 was amended to include plants and plant products so that was a recent uh addition and then um it gets into where we're where our discussion starts is 2016. um with the we've talked before about this on the show with the injurious wildlife list that U.S. Fish and Wildlife created for the uh, ban of interstate sale of salamanders. So in 2016, because of concerns over kitrid, they said, you know, it's illegal to import any of these salamanders into the United States, and it's illegal to transport them state to state. Hmm. And... Uh, That takes us to the Reptile Association, uh, the United States Association of Reptile Keepers, otherwise known as USARC, which is the United States' lobbying group for, for herpetoculturists, for reptile keepers. And they fought that in 2016 and actually won and had it overturned based on the language in the Lacey Act um, they said that u s fish and wildlife was was overreaching they don't have the authority or jurisdiction to do that to ban interstate mm. trade and so the the law was uh, struck down now have we
0: have we mentioned already the reason that the law was originally created i mean this was in the in the wake of the realization that B-sal, the salamander version of chytrid fungus, right. was spreading like wildfire in Europe, and they were terrified that with all of North America's salamanders, native salamander species, that it would become a serious problem if it was being traded across the U.S.
1: Yes, and and I sh- yeah, and I think that's important to point out that this was done with the uh, with the best of intentions, right? That certainly. What we want is to prevent what happened in Europe from happening here. Um,
0: And what we've seen in frogs, because, you know, the frog situation, chytrid, BD, chytrid, getting spread all over the U.S. was also in part surely related to the pet trade. So it's, um, you know, we've been burned before. We know how it can go. If we don't regulate, and you know, when I saw that they were they were um, regulating the salamander trade in response to this, I was impressed. I mean, the I think how is the the import situation at the moment into the U.S. of no, European there is, zero? It, there,
1: that's actually still true, yeah, uh, and has been for for years now. You can no longer import or export uh, salamanders. Mm-hmm. There may be some export coming going out. To like Canada and stuff like that, uh, but there's absolutely no importation.
3: Right,
0: so they have managed to crack down on the getting the things in, but that wouldn't stop it from spreading if there were already strains of B cell in captive collections that have been brought in from Europe. Yes,
1: and we should say, as of this recording, there have not been any recorded cases of B cell in North America, which is good.
0: I believe the research shows that plethodontid salamanders, although they are susceptible to it, are not as susceptible to it as salamandrid salamanders, which are most of the salamanders in Europe.
1: There's debate about that still, uh, depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. And there's also some evidence that from parent to adult, uh, or from parent to egg, rather, that B-cell is not transferable. So in the original bam. You were still allowed to ship eggs because it was believed that eggs were not capable of having B cell.
3: Hmm.
1: I, again, I don't know how true that really is. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: Especially if it's in the water. I mean, the zoosporidia of of um, yes these Batrachokittrium's are in they the were, water
1: so as usual with a lot of this stuff the the lawmakers are not necessarily scientists Mm -hmm. and are just going with what they're provided with by in this case sometimes
2: not even not science friendly even correct Um, so yeah so I think
1: I, I think it's important to state that the global reptile and amphibian trade has been a net negative for for wildlife all over the world yeah i I I don't think you can debate that yeah and i I
0: think at this point we can mention the paper that was published last year by ben marshall of the um her highlights podcast and colleagues where they uh, the title of the paper was Thousands of Reptile Species Threatened by Underregulated Global Trade, published in Nature Communications. I think they already have 16 citations on that paper. It was published just a few yes. months ago. And and basically what they showed is that almost all reptile species are in the pet trade. Now, whether or not that's actually true is is hard to assess based on the methods that they use. I, I think that it is a strong indicator that things are way out of control. And I think Ethan, what you just said is absolutely right, like net negative, especially for the wildlife themselves, is certainly something that I would say about the international pet trade yeah. um, I think for you know for local livelihoods, it can be understated and overstated as to how beneficial it is, but for so, the animals and for the environments that they're coming from it's it's probably not good, and regulation should have been done the way that that Ben Marshall and colleagues pointed out, which is to permit trade only in those animals for which it has been demonstrated to be
1: sustainable. I agree. And I guess before we go any further with this discussion, mm-hmm. uh, before I open any more of this can of worms, I, I wanna say that my opinions on this probably don't fit very well into either camp. Um, Same. And and I'll and I'll maybe get into that more as we as we dive in a little further. But, um, you have one side that is trying their best to stop a, a possible catastrophe, uh, and doing that through the tools of, of of government, which is a you know it's a hammer when what mm-hmm. maybe we really need is not a hammer. And then you've got the other side which believes it's their god given right to own every damn animal on the planet. And that's not true either. That that Certainly should not, not be true. So whenever I talk about this, I inevitably piss someone off, usually both sides off. So so I'm going into that you know, with, with that expectation. But I, I just want to say before I go any further that I'm aware of that. <laughs> that that yeah. uh Moderation
0: is is a reasonable thing, and and we've seen in plenty of political displays that if you only polarize things, you don't have effective arguments.
1: Yes. Um, So what I want to talk about is very recently, uh, there has been a proposed amendment to the Lacey Act in the Senate. Um, It's called uh, S-626, and it was uh, put forward by Marco Rubio, who's the Republican senator from uh, Florida. Florida. Yes, and That's based on what he just did here. He this is found... right. I was just going to say, this comes on the heels of what they just did banning iguanas and tigus and... Uh, pythons. Pythons. So, the
2: thing about that is is a, that... A bunch of other things, but I haven't read the whole list, but there are a bunch of
1: yeah you're legislating you're legislating the closing of the barn doors way way after you've let the horses out um (laughs) so i don't know that that's anything more than really political theater uh, realistically you Mm -hmm. know um the iguanas are already there the burmese pythons are already there the tigus are already there and also, would, can I say something you know,
2: because this bothers me so much and I just want to say yeah. it. I understand the problem with the pythons, I get it. But the problem with, and the tegus, yes, I get it. The bring the iguanas in the situation is super annoying to me because the iguanas <laughs> do not largely expand into the natural areas. They are eating people's flowers, which is what probably they're bond to this. <laughs> Yeah. So you know, because I say they dig, they dig things that b- create problems in 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 because their their burrows create problems in the in the uh, riverbanks and stuff. That's not true. So yeah, and I mean I, I don't want to say it's not true because I'm sure that there's some study that's gonna prove it. But you know, it's not like other countries don't have iguanas everywhere, and that doesn't happen. So. I will... And the problem
0: that these animals pose is is nothing in comparison to feral cats.
2: Exactly, so. I was going to say that. So if you, there, there, on the meantime, there are this huge amount of, you know, feral cats, really creating a problem, creating all the birds everywhere, and and nobody's doing anything about it. I have a problem. I understand the thing with the pythons and the tegus because they do expand into natural areas. But he wanted so, another, man, this, this is problematic.
1: So one thing about that law, that, that recent law uh, that this is coming on the heels of is that it does focus somewhat on folks who are breeding those animals for a livelihood and um, the big players in that world who focus on those large reptiles, many of them, how can I say this diplomatically? Uh, have ties have other ties to problematic uh, behaviors in the reptile industry smuggling for example Mm
3: -hmm. Uh,
1: so i'm not going to name names there i'm not going to get into that but i have a feeling that that some of that is targeting those people specifically Mm -hmm. this goes back uh, uh, you know Not to get into another tangent right away, but this goes back to something I've said many times before, which is that we treat, in this country, all exotics under one umbrella. So you lump, you know, Tiger King in with a kid who wants to buy a leopard gecko, and to me that's insane. Um, They're not the same. You know, exotics... (laughs) owning a tiger is not the same as owning a leopard gecko. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so but but in this country under the under the law, exotics means anything that's not a cat or a dog. So uh I I feel that one thing that we should address is that there should be more nuance to that, I think. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um
0: but, uh, and it doesn't so, seem like it would be that hard to create a ranking system for the threat posed in any given state by a specific group of animals. Like, correct. if you're going to bring right. in Arctic species into Florida, they don't pose a threat because they can't survive outside the tank.
1: Well, we already do such a thing when it comes to the endangerment level of, of species. We have, exactly. a, you know, we have the sites lists and stuff, so it doesn't. It wouldn't be that difficult to adapt something like that, I think, to, you know, this is an injurious, this is a non-injurious exotic, you know, whatever. Okay. So this new amendment to the Lacey Act, uh, S-626, which is not the bill that we were just talking about that bans iguanas in Florida. This is a federal uh, amendment to the Lacey Act, would uh, reinstate the interstate transport ban— update the language so that it could no longer be struck down based on the language. They kind of got it struck down on a technicality basically. Mm. Um, and it would create a whitelist. So essentially U S fish and wildlife would create a whitelist of animals that are non injurious and everything else by default would be considered injurious.
0: Mm. An interesting move.
2: And cats there in the non-injurious one, I mean, yeah,
0: yeah, surely. Uh,
1: the whitelist would pertain to anything being imported. So any reptile, amphibian, fish, bird, mammal, invertebrate that's not on the whitelist is by default an injurious species and banned from import or interstate transport. Um, it would create a new authority allowing the Fish and Wildlife Service to use an emergency designation that becomes effective immediately after being published in the federal register uh, unless an extension of no more than 60 days is allowed uh, so no due process no public input on anything no hearings no advance notice for these listings um so and, wait sorry the, the listing yeah.
0: the, the actual like species added to the list are, that's what doesn't have due process. That's the bit that they can just decide spontaneously. Correct. Okay. Wow. Interesting.
1: Um, the uh, it would also. So I should say to you that this wording that I'm that I've got, this is coming off of USARC's website. So USARC being the lobby group for reptile keepers. I did not have access at the time of researching this to the actual, they haven't released the actual full wording of the ban
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, of the, or of the amendment rather. Yeah. Um, the effective date would be one year after, after they enacted the act. So you'd have a year to get your shit together. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: and do they, or I guess they can't affect anyone who already has the animals in captivity other than banning their trade.
1: That was the way it worked last time, so I'm going to assume that's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But... I I mean, otherwise they'd
0: be facing all kinds of ethical problems with having to put animals down and whatnot, which I can't imagine that they'd be too thrilled about.
1: Um, And this bill already has a bipartisan co-sponsor, a Democratic senator from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Brian, Brian Schatz. Well,
0: I can understand why Hawaiians would want to say no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no.
1: Florida and Hawaii, the two probably states affected the most by... Absolutely. You know, so... Uh, so...
0: Can I just give my... my yeah. un, Go ahead. So, my un-American opinion. So, I guess for people who don't know, I mean, it's clear that I lived in Germany. I am... I have very little to do with America. And from the outside... It sounds surprisingly reasonable to me, in part also because of how my mind was affected by this paper by Ben Marshall and colleagues, where they, like, seeing the number of species that are in the trade, and, and you know, I've been to HUM, the world's largest, or allegedly yeah, the world's cr- largest uh, p- uh, reptile and amphibian trade it's show crazy. in the world. It's, it's insane, and the number of species that you can just get... Yeah. Is yeah in it's 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 obviously unsustainable and it's done in a way that is is commercializing the animals and yeah. and the people's yes. people's rights to keep animals do not Trump. should not come above yeah. the animals' rights to not suffer yeah um, and Even, you know I would be the first one to say that I hate Peter because of the way that they run their organization and all kinds of bad stuff. But I do think that we go to shows like that. A lot of the animals are suffering and a lot of that suffering is especially endured by animals that are extracted from the wild specifically yeah. for the point of going to these shows.
1: Look, yeah. look, I vend, I vend at these shows, you know, not at ham, but I vend yeah. at reptile shows. I sell the animals that I breed and, and you're right. Uh, there's no way around saying that the reptile trade, like I said when I when I opened this discussion, I cannot say that the global reptile trade in all of its various forms is a net positive for for animals, especially no. for the animals. And, themselves. And, and
2: how many times has that happens to any of us? Because I remember when Ethan was buying the goniotos, you know, we started looking at oh, let me see what this guy has, you know, offering. And all of a sudden I found these gonatota species that live in like a mountain mm. in an island yeah. in Venezuela that I had to climb to see. Like, <coughs> and, and they're yeah. available for sale. I was like, how did these people, yeah, you know, obviously yeah. smuggled because you cannot take those out of the country. Everything is for sale. <laughs> yes. It's crazy. I was like, how is that even possible? So I, I completely agree with that. Something has to be done. Yeah. So ethically
1: morally mark i agree with you Mm -hmm. my feelings are complicated because this has been my hobby my 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 life, and sometimes my livelihood for decades and it's very hard i mean it's not impossible but it's very hard to say yes please legislate something i love out of existence yeah oh and i
0: totally agree you know i i uh... And I I know Bill Strand, for instance, very well, I know, I know several people who live from breeding and selling their animals across state boundaries, um, seldom internationally, just because it's so complicated. But, you know, and it's clear that this would be um, it has the potential to be a major effector for people. It depends a little bit on how loose they are with what goes on the white list. Yes, And I would hope that the people making the decision about the list are ecologists. I think it's unlikely, but ideally yeah. it should be done by people who actually know what they're talking about.
1: So let me, can we, let me set that aside for a second. And I want to talk about USARC briefly and, and what they are and, and who they are. Um, U.S. ARC being a lobbyist group is opposed to this amendment. And they were the people responsible for striking it down in 2016. They are mainly comprised of business owners who sell reptile pet supplies products. There is no herpetologist on their board. And Mm. there's certainly no ecologist on their board. So it's primarily it's a business. It's a it's a business. It's a lobby. Um, I cannot get behind. I mean, there are many keepers who treat this the way that the Second Amendment is treated in the United States, where, you know, it's my right to own what I own. And it's not the government's right to tell me what I can or can't own. And I can't, I can't get behind that. You know, it's become, it's, which the the insane thing about it to me is that you have reptile keepers now in the United States who are essentially anti conservationists. Mm. And that's insane to me because how can, how can you have that position? uh, If, if they don't exist in the wild anymore. Yeah. It's a problem. It's a huge problem
0: and there's so many i mean a lot of people who keep the animals like to like to tell themselves that they're doing a net net positive for the animal and yeah maybe and at the not... individual level you know animals in captivity suffer a lot less than wild animals like a lot less than wild animals there's a reason we know from captivity that animals can live a certain age well because you if they, are like, well they kept. don't live that old in the wild
2: right. if they are well kept but for all those if animals they're well that kept. Are, if the, for all those animals that are well kept there are a lot of them that are not well kept yes. and kept yes. you know in really bad conditions
0: easily 100 to 1 so I'm i mean i don't have i don't
2: bit. i don't have to be i don't have to be go too far sometimes you, when you when you go to the pet store or the corner Ugh. the lizards right. there are struggling and I'm yeah. in really bad shape, and it makes me very sad every time I see that. By the way, that's the reason why I don't have anything, because it's, it's not really. I mean, I don't think that if you don't have the best things to give, the best um, infrastructure to give an animal the best life that you can, you should not have. I understand,
1: and I agree with you, and I understand that position very well. And I think, you know, I'm going to borrow a second from a relate, you know. Let's say that it's a global animal trade, really, not not just reptiles and amphibians, because I think the aquarium trade is tied up in this. Oh. And the the plant trade, you know, the. It's I mean, the aquarium
0: thing. trade is is in many ways worse by far. Right. So <laughs> the it's number a, of uh, animals poached from reef, reefs is just shocking. With cyanide. Yeah, it's you know, it's,
1: uh, what I want to get at just for a second is that it's a bigger picture than even that right it's it's our relationship as a species to the rest of the world and it's not good and Mm -hmm. you can tout whatever success stories you want in the aquarium trade all i ever hear about is how in the wake of finding nemo yeah. We learned we learned how to breed clownfish in the captivity. The reason we learned how to
0: breed them was because it became utterly unsustainable it, to <laughs> harvest them at the rate they were being
1: harvested. Exactly. And the majority of people who tried to keep them killed them. So yeah. I don't know that you could really call that a success story. I mean, in the no. long run, it's great that we now don't collect them from the wild. However, or, or as much. However, it's not a success story really it comes in the wake of a lot of destruction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the same is true for how we collect you know the reef rock and the
0: uh yeah for, and for every, every example that success, yeah, exactly for every there su- is there are dozens of examples of of failures and yeah. um and i you know i think that dedicated breeders like we see especially in chameleon husbandry the dedicated people who are who are really putting in the hours to make it possible to establish a species in captivity, figure out what it needs. We're learning a lot from those people, but they are the absolute exception. If you look and go, I mean, if you can go into any pet store in the US and buy veiled chameleons by the handful, and they're mostly already have calcium deficiencies, they're not being taken care of by the pet stores themselves, and then they come with, terrible advice on how to actually keep the animals and so you wind up with thousands of dead chameleon babies every year because people are not knowing how
1: to actually take care of them. and that's everything it's leopard it's all of the ones that we aren't taking from the wild right even the ones that we have well established in captivity leopard geckos ball pythons bearded dragons
2: and all these which are super easy to keep you see them struggling yeah but they're
1: almost never bred because we just collect them from the... They're just available in the wild here in South Carolina. You just go out and... They're almost never bred in captivity. Yeah. Um, but for all the ones that are, they're still horribly mistreated. Yeah. <laughs> so... I don't have a good answer. I, I don't have... I, I don't think... So I think that this law... You say it's reasonable... I think it's a little bit of an overreach, but it comes down to I,
0: Yeah, so I, I just wanna wanna qualify. The, the structure that they're suggesting where you say there is a whitelist, these are the animals that should be that are tradable. I don't necessarily think that whether or not they are invasive is the it like potential to be invasive is the deciding factor on whether or not they should be on the whitelist. I think Correct. that there are more important factors at play there. So it sounds to me like there's a combination of good ideas and good intention and what we typically see in laws like this of, of overstepping. And, and and part of that I can see comes from things like, you know, Tiger King where where people make a bad reputation for everyone else. It takes one
1: asshole with a with a Burmese python. Yeah. <laughs> To ruin it,
0: you know. Absolutely, and, you know, for the animals to get out, and also for the people to get injured. The big lobby here in Germany is uh, for venomous snakes, keeping the active trade of dangerous animals. Um, and I, I don't know how this is in the U.S., but here, like, there are a lot of people who keep a lot of deadly snakes. It's it's state and to state. It here. just takes yeah. one. For everyone in the community to be completely screwed by
2: that, but I'm sorry. I mean, do you really need to keep a venomous snake?
0: I strongly agree. I'm not sure that anybody, except for people who are actually, you know, partnering with institutes Mm -hmm. where they're learning about venom, blah blah blah. That's so rare.
1: I don't keep pots. I never will. And I don't think that it's necessary. I I feel the same way about this. This has gotten me kicked out of reptile groups. But I don't think that it's your God given right to own a 20 foot python or a venomous snake or any of those things. Do I think that it should be, that there should be a path to doing it legally via permits? Yeah. Regulate the shit out of it. You know? That way, those guys who say it's my God given right, you put the work in, great. You're liable now.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a paper but, trail. Uh, you know, I guess in the same way as uh, the problem that we've had, America doesn't like licensing things, as we have seen with guns. Yes. So,
1: <laughs> my God, yeah. I mean, is that ever going to happen? I have no, I have no belief that that is going to happen. But I wish that you had some sort of path to say, "I'm a licensed." Uh, keeper for this family of animal you know this species yeah and uh and here's my paperwork because i yeah. would do it in a heartbeat
0: and i think we've seen you know one this is a, a place where people who feel hopeless by this law should or about this law should look to examples of places that have legislated it to that extent and see how the people there are like australia for instance is ridiculously strict about what you can and cannot keep, Even, like including international animals are basically impossible to get hold of, and local animals you have to have all of the correct paperwork in order to do.
1: Weirdly, except for axolotls. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. I mean, maybe uh, it's
0: different for animals that are already in the country. Um,
1: I I suspect that that has something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh,
0: certainly those you know there is still a very active herpetocultural community in australia who with i mean this is something we should talk with people like scott eiper and stuff about because i think the the average care that's being invested in the animals because the people have to have the experience and they have to have the knowledge um is is going to be higher yes and and germany strictly licenses all of the venomous and large animals. So if I wanted to get a boa, I would have to register it, any of the boa species, even the relatively small ones. And that's so, like, there, is, there are procedures that we have to go through in order to get hold of those dangerous animals, and that makes a lot of sense.
1: You know, you asked how, how difficult is it to get a hold of a venomous snake? I live in New York, which is one of the most regulated states as goes, reptiles. Years and decades ago, they banned any any constrictor over ten feet long. You're not allowed to own venomous animals unless you have unless you do have a. There's one path to permitting, and it's like for educational uh, or academic venom research stuff. It's very locked down. But every year, I can drive down to Pennsylvania where they have the Hamburg Reptile Show. Walk in and walk out with a black mamba if I freaking want to. Or <laughs> I mean, uh, Pennsylvania basically has no laws, you know? So yeah. it's all state to state. And, and there's very little... Of course, you know, every year I see idiots do that, post it on Facebook. Hey, look what I got. And then get nailed by, you know, the New York DEC. Well, that's with, good. You know, so... so I won't say that there's no enforcement, because that's definitely not true. They do, they do come after those people. The first time I ever went to that show, I walked up to a table, and the table rattled at me. <laughs> Just deli cups full of rattlers, you know? Uh, and there's no, there's no... there's no there's nothing. There's no oversight on that as far as, like, who walks out of there. Who, there's no paperwork to be, to be checked. Mm. Um, so
0: in, in HUM you have to go it's a specific room and you have to show your ID to get in and yeah. they only let a certain number of people in at a time and I mean the stuff they've got in that room will blow your mind and it's cool to see <laughs> but yeah. I would rather see those in a zoo or you know in the care of someone who's actually studying their venom or whatever than you know know that anybody can you know get the, get the licenses. <sighs>
1: And it's you know it's I, I go back to the uh, the aquarium trade discussion. Uh, when I was a teenager working at the local fish shop, there were a couple times we ordered blue ringed octopuses into the store, and and they arrived and they were about ninety dollars and it was not hard to get.
2: That's crazy. That's <laughs> you know
0: scary. The
1: the <laughs> the stuff that keeps me up at night. <laughs> is, is that, you know, like,
0: yeah. uh, and I, I think I, I would like to just mention, um, that this is, you know, we have been talking Lacey act reptile, amphibian, obviously that's our main, that's our main thing. We've mentioned a little bit that it's relevant to mammals and stuff as well. I would just like to say that as an orchid keeper, uh, plants are not immune to this problem too. The yeah. plant trafficking is serious. And orchid trafficking, especially. Orchids and, and, and lilies. I was
1: surprised to learn about Etsy being a huge black market plant. Uh, <laughs> really? Uh, Crazy. Yeah. Like, people were selling these rare Monstera morphs mm. or something. I don't know enough about plants to really, you know. But, but I, I like, know that you know, eBay. For ridiculous and stuff. amounts of money. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean,. It's all of this, all of this trade is so, it's kind of um, archaic in a way. You know, it, it reminds me of the, the quest to acquire pineapples. Yeah. In, you know, <laughs> when pineapples first made it into Europe and they became a status symbol, a, a symbol of wealth and whatnot. Um, obviously, I don't think people are necessarily using their reptiles and amphibians as a status of wealth because usually they more quickly make you poor than anything else. But I do think that in a way it's this like grabbing, you know, whatever I want. I it's like, get. it's and, like
1: we can't appreciate something without owning it. Yeah. And and, and, and I'm saying that as a keeper of animals, you know, yeah. and I, 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 I realize that, but I, I have seen so many posts where, you know, I'm on, i a lot of rep, reptile and amphibian groups and stuff. So many posts where the person is like, I just learned this animal exists. Where can I buy it?
0: Yeah. And that's what we saw in the earless monitor. And uh, that fueled an international illegal trade real fast um, that had some also some interesting quirks. Because when the animals get into Germany, when you get to the second generation, they are legalized irrespective of how the parents got in. And now there are legal. Yeah earless monitors that you can acquire Lanthanotis, uh, yeah. which is a, a crazy thing. And I mean, f- fine, now that they're in, maybe it's okay that they can, I mean, you might as well do something when, with them when they're there, but it would be better if we could just, like, not. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, you know, just to just to, to sort of land on a yeah uh, an ending, I... I can't blindly support what is essentially the NRA for snakes. Uh, but I also you know I I also have these very honest misgivings about just saying, you know, we deserved it. <laughs> it it sucks. Uh, there's no there's no good area for me to be. Yeah. And uh,
0: uh and I, I, I think that seeing Having an issue like this become bipartisan and and genuinely being, or, well, being partisan, I guess is the better, the correct way to put it. But being a you're with me or you're against me debate yeah. is not healthy. And having a lobby group that is not willing to concede is not good. I mean... They're not science. They are
1: they are a business based organization, not a science based organization. Exactly, and uh, or a conservation minded organization. So that is my problem with them, and yeah. and uh, and so I can't support them, even if it means that I have to say goodbye to something that I love. And you know, I'm not going to lie and say that I don't that 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 I'm happy about it. But yeah. Uh, but I'm also just, you know, I, I would not want to, to to be responsible for the wiping out of no. you know, the salamander species that we do have. Even if that's an unlikely thing, it's still a risk. Yeah. And, no, and, and, and
2: beyond the ones that you have, all the others that are being collected and all that around the world.
1: Yeah. yeah. Right. Right, it goes it goes way beyond. Yeah, it goes way beyond. Yeah, Uh, it's it's uh, it's so short-sighted on both sides to say you know like I see both sides just wanting to listen to their little part of it and not recognizing that this is a huge global problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think if we were able, if we could just sit down at the same table and make a compromise and, and discuss it. I think there's a lot that we can take away from it right in a way it's something that we are sorely missing from this debate right because the three of us agree pretty vehemently on these points yeah. um that we're not we're also a bubble here and and listeners i guess if you're still with us at this point you're also part of our bubble and thank <laughs> you for being in our bubble with us
3: yeah
0: um but we well, do need to just in, talk I talk about it. Uh,
1: you know, I mentioned being in those groups. I will say if you're a if you're a United States keeper of reptiles and you say publicly I don't support US Arc, people freaking hate you because they think, well then you're pro government taking away my snakes. Well no There's <laughs> gotta
0: be a, a middle ground There's gotta have to be uh, a Yeah. Ground.
1: I mean Yeah. Yeah.
0: And on that note Dear listeners, uh, thank you for sticking around with us. This has been a really exciting time. We're so glad to be back. It's really exciting for us to be back here again with you. It's been almost a year, and what a year it's been. Ethan, where can one find you on the internet?
1: I am at Black
0: Mud Puppy virtually everywhere. And Gabriel, where can one find you?
2: I am at Serpent Illus on Twitter on Instagram and Gabriel Ugeto Art on Facebook
0: and you can find me at Mark Shirts on pretty much all the things except for on Facebook where I'm at MD Shirts because I'm bad at things you can follow the podcast uh, well you can check our ex- expansive show notes uh, which for this episode probably won't be so expensive uh, at squamatespod.com there you can also send us an email or you can write us at squamatespod at gmail.com You can find us on Twitter at SquamatesPod, on Facebook at SquamatesPod, on Instagram at SquamatesPod. We're back, bitches. (laughs) And as we say on the show... Hakuna (laughs) Squamata!